we will potentially have aggregators listening to this and they will say this never happens and it will never happen. And, and I agree. It's, I have, you know, mostly seen very good buyers and very good buyer behavior. Also, it's a very big uh, pond. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven-figure exit, and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's sponsor is Eva, the best AI repricer for Amazon profits. Private label sellers, are you wasting your cash? Eva reprices your products for you, and the result is up to 50% more profits. Eva serves hundreds of seven-figure sellers in the USA and is now out for British and European sellers as well. For a 15-day free trial, go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Ladles and jelly spoons, welcome back to the 10K Collective podcast, the place to be for six, seven, and eight figure Amazon sellers, or should we say Amazon based business owners? Because today we are continuing our discussion of how to deal with the exit realities today, as in when you sell your business, how does it real, really work in real life? Guiding us through these waters is Klaus Rosenberg Gotthardt of Epic Partners, Epic Partners, I should say, the founding partner and CEO. Epic Partners are an MA advisory firm specialize in e-commerce, which I guess for most of us is a business broker, I guess, in, in primitive terms. Is, is that about right, Klaus? Yeah, the, the broker terminology and the, the advisory loosely thrown around. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that there's a bit of a distinct, distinguish ourselves as advisors and not as brokers as such. And, and maybe it's because we are, we're doing a bit more advisory work with the sellers. We just don't just put up that numbers on our website and people can click on it if they would like to buy it. So we do actually proactively work with the sellers, positioning their earnings, looking at their business before we even go to market. We are proper advisors, so I'm using the term, but I know broker is what is mostly understood. And for many people, this is the biggest event, a uh, financial event in their life. Not even buying a house or getting a home is at this magnitude as selling your own business, six, seven, or even uh, eight figures. Like we talked about in the last episode, it's just really important to surround yourself with advisors, be that lawyers, accountants, or the whole M&A process where we are helping as well. Or if you are of that decision, you want to eat, educate yourself and do it yourself. It's just, you should definitely educate yourself because it's not straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. I would say in a case as big as this, as you say, the biggest finance event of anyone's life in most cases, and certainly buying a house is significant and will have big effects on your life, but it's not something you've normally put 10 years of your life into, right? So it's, it's a different sort of blood, sweat and tears relationship, if you will. And I would say having an advisor, educating yourself, which hopefully is what we're doing for people right now, 
and maybe using a broker in the sense that you actually broker the deal as well as advising. I, I think all three are pretty advisable, at least at the very least, advisors and educating yourself. So let's plunge into educating people. So we've talked about the mistakes that the sellers or the business owners make when they come to making at selling their business. And there's quite a few ways we can slip up. It turns out, so if you didn't catch that episode, folks, do look out for that on the social media channels or indeed on the podcast, if you're listening to this on the podcast. Um, but today we're going to talk about where the buyers start messing us about. So what are the classic mistakes that we, or rather things that the buyers do that are a bit sneaky? And then we'll dive into what the uh, solutions are as well. Okay. We have to be clear. And, and as a seller, you have to be clear and understand from the very beginning that buying a business on the buyer side is all about business. Okay. That it always comes down to, to getting a deal as good as possible for them. And in that case, as I said, it's all down to business. And in that sense, also all tricks are, you know, allowed. And um, I will not say that this happens so much in the e-commerce space. In normal M&A, a lot of tricks are being played on the buyer's side and also on the seller side, to be honest. But I will give one example just to show the level of techniques and tactics. I was once selling a company. Um, I had a female lawyer. And uh, by the time we came to the closing, she was nine months pregnant. And the opposing lawyer, the buyer of my company, uh, appointed a female lawyer as well to have that gender balance between the two opposing parties. And uh, on the day of closing, uh, they called us up and said uh, they would like to start at two o'clock in the afternoon. Mind you, my lawyer was nine months pregnant. We sat for 13 hours straight till three o'clock in the morning negotiating. And it, it just shows that all tricks count because who do you think is most tired? Who do you think wants to go to bed? Who do you want to think wants to give in fastest? Who do you think wants to just get this over with and get to bed in swollen feet and everything? Of course, it's the opposing, in my case, my lawyer. And you know what? No one sees that. It just seems very nice. Okay, two o'clock. Oh, okay, that's a little bit late. And okay, let's just do it. It's, you know, all calculated. So, I'm, of course, I am not saying that uh, any of our e-commerce businesses are going to experience this with the buyer side. Those buyers that we are seeing in this universe with aggregators are great people, great companies. And it's also a little bit lighter process because it's very standardized. Amazon FBAs is something that is, you know, well understood and you know how to take over the business and buy the business. But I'm, I'm just using that long um, story here to say that it is not just straightforward always. Yeah. And I think whilst, yeah, you don't necessarily expect that kind of level of dirty tricks, that the basic principle that's calculated on the other side makes sense. And I'm sure that savvy sellers will do the same as well. And one of the things we can do by educating people is, I suppose, it, in the sense that in a war, information is a potential competitive edge, isn't it? It's it's potential armament. And I suppose if you go in educated, knowing this, knowing also some of the tricks that you can pull, maybe making sure that you start your negotiations at 2pm. It's funny what you're saying about negotiation times. I can't help noticing that the EU and, and whoever, the United States or, or Britain and the EU, whatever, tend to reach agreements at about 1am. And I'm sure it's because people have just run out of stamina by that point and they just give in. So there is a physical stamina element, isn't there, somehow? It, there is. And you know what? It's a, a normal contract could easily be 30, 40 pages with no. hundreds of clauses. And and if sometimes you're not a comma, a wording, a choice of words, you have to remember that these contracts are made up if things go uh, south. 
and you know, and that you need to end up in a litigation in, in front of a judge or something. And this person has to read this, what you agreed upon. So sometimes it does make a lot of sense, but you really have to choose your words correctly. And that's why these lawyers are sometimes moving back and forth between one or two words, simply to, to position themselves in that courtroom that day when they don't talk to each other and another person has to judge what was agreed and agreed upon. Yeah. Clarity is an important thing. And I think, yeah, that's one of those things where you all, I guess most of us have at some point in our lives employed lawyers and then got really annoyed that they're extremely detailed merchants, but that's exactly why you hire them. And by the way, I'm the son of a lawyer, so I, I sympathize with anyone thinking, what is it like? I, knew, <laughs> I know how it is, but guess what? It matters, for, as you say. It, you don't want it to come to litigation, but you want it to count when it does. Okay, right. so <laughs> that's the first thing, basic principle, hammered home with your story there. Uh, what's the second thing that w we need to look out that buyers can I think, do to us? I think one thing that if a buyer sees an asset that that is uh, of interest, they would want to take this asset off the market, so to speak, uh, as quickly as possible. Um, so they will potentially send an LOI, a letter of intent or letter of interest, you know, how you word it. They will send an LOI, which looks very interesting and will make you as a seller sign with them and give them a period of exclusivity. So this, the seller does that, that they are moving fast forward, making it very appealing to to come in with them and then they will lock you in a period. And I think since we are now talking seller's mistakes, it can become a mistake because if you have put up a nice big number and you are maybe not ready to justify that number in your later earnings, but you did in your latest conversation, but you just did it to, to get the asset off the market and have exclusivity for a period, I think that can backfire because the, then very early on, you will start, they will start having to go back on that price or you know, the number that they were initiate, initially indicating. And I think for many sellers, that would be a little bit of a break of trust or something because they honestly believed what they saw on that first LOI, that that was the direction we were going. Maybe they were even thinking we could negotiate a bit up from there if things were going well, but certainly not being starting the chipping in the price just because someone went fast ahead and wanted to take the asset off the market. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where, and I've heard this from other um, aggregators, to be fair, and not just business brokers, but aggregators gently naming anyone else's names. And we're not going to do that on the show, I'm afraid, if you're looking for dirt, folks, because uh, I don't want to be sued into smithereens by well-funded aggregators. But what well, I have had aggregators saying that other aggregators, and I'm sure it's true, will do similar things. And if it comes, if an offer comes in very fast for your business, like in two or three days, it probably means they haven't done due diligence, which means, of course, as you were saying, that they don't necessarily know if the price is right or not. And often it won't be because all entrepreneurs I've ever met ever are pretty optimistic about their numbers, which is a very polite way of putting it. And that includes me. Um, so when it comes down to an accountant looking at your books, there's normally a difference. Um, Okay, good. So that's one thing to look out for. What, what are the other things that, that the buyers can do? So one thing that we very often see is that there is, there's a couple of elements in your, in the um, process here. One is cash at closing. That means the amount of money that is being paid on the day that you either transfer your assets or you transfer your shares. So cash at closing is one element. And then there is uh, another amount that is either stipulated as an earnout where you know have a potential upside as well or it's held back as a stability uh, amount in case that they are buying shares the buyer needs to secure themselves a little bit because they never know what's going to come after they own you have to 
And seller has to remember here that when you are doing a share transaction and, and the buyer is buying shares of your company, they are taking out the responsibility for everything that has happened in the past in your name. So if, if the buyer is saying, yeah, we can do that, we can do a share deal, but we need to have a certain big amount of stability, that's simply because they need to safeguard themselves. So when I'm saying what, what mistakes we can see is having too big a stability amount, some unreasonable, it's okay to put a number aside that is for taxes and unpaid VAT, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you should have seen that in your due diligence, but that amount shouldn't be more than 10% of the old transaction value that in, in terms of, so sometimes get 20 or 30% instability and that's just, that's just not fair, but the seller will try and do that simply because you then you can defer the payments. You can, and might, something might come up that can reduce the price at the, at the end of it. Okay. So in other words, that they got two uh, reasons why on the, the selling side. And by the way, the, the classic way to win in negotiations is to understand what motivates the other person on the other side of the table, because then you can see, A, what are they going to do? And B, how to counteract it. But so I would say, at least in my experience of it, obviously you have much higher level experience in M&A stuff, but I would say that it's a cash flow thing for them. So they keep their cash for longer, is what you're saying. And then the other one is they're hoping that in the meantime, something may change, which it often does, and, and they pay less overall. Is that right? Yes, Perfect. that's and there, there, it is correct. And, and there will be clauses of maybe of level of profitability and stuff like that, that, that might trigger uh, a reduction in the final payout. And, and I think we mentioned that also on the last call that if you're getting an earnout or a, the, the last payment is done on, on uh, earnings versus revenues, you might not get what you want because a new buyer would really like to ramp up the marketing spend, for instance, or opening a new marketplace, and that's going to cost a lot and it's going to take on your bottom line yeah. um, to make Especially sure makes that sense. You, yeah. I can begin to see it from the buyer's point of view. What, what would make sense to me would be to say, okay, we're going to build a 30% stability fund. I would, uh, if I were being really sneaky and my lawyers would let me do it, I would then make sure that the earnout was based on net earnings or EBITDA, SDE, pre-tax profit, not revenue. And I would then spend like crazy in the period when we had an earnout, find some problem, pay them less because I'd taken some of the money for stability fund and then pay them less on the earnout. And then after that, the profits would boom in and I wouldn't have to pay the buyer. Now, of course, I'm saying this, by the way, if anyone's listening to this in five years time and I'm buying your company, I'm not doing this, I promise, honestly, I may be, but it makes sense, doesn't it? You can see things from another perspective that, as you said, it's business. It's about money. It's about cash flow and profit and yes. business value, right? And I, I want to say that I, we will potentially have aggregators listening to this and they will say this never happens and it will never happen. And, and I agree. It's, I have, you know, mostly seen very good buyers and very good buyer behavior. Also, it's a very big uh, pond we are fishing in, but it's a very small and needed community and still in sense of sellers and people talk. So as a buyer, you can also not uh, taint your brand and your name by some mis misbehaving or being too smart. Okay. So I, I don't really, I'm sure things will happen and we will hear about things, but I, I just want to say, because you painted a very nasty picture, but I'm, I'm not saying that we are seeing that. I'm just saying we're not seeing that. Be aware that there are, of course, loops and, and tricks to be played here. Thank you so much for joining us in this interview today with Klaus. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. We have been talking really about where buyers of businesses can cause problems for the business sellers. And uh, yeah, really a lot of it comes down to a mixture of understanding 
the buyer's position. They are trying to get the best possible deal and don't be fooled by them being charming or plausible. But equally, there's some tactical stuff we've got to look out for as well, such as uh, lowball offers after due diligence, uh, unreasonable stability fund, um, M&A mistakes, um, being honest about why you're selling, of course. And there are other mistakes that we make as, as sellers as well. So just listen back to this stuff if you are in the process of selling or about to go into that process. Obviously, for a lot of us, that feels like a rather specialist area that a lot of us are just focused on operating our businesses. But I think that one of the characteristics of e-commerce that I want to flag up and, and credit where it's due, Steve Larson of, um, I think it's called Business Funnel Radio. Um, flagged this up in a podcast the other day, which made me think again about something I kind of knew, but he put his finger on it, which is this. Okay, let's be clear about the nature of what we're selling. E-commerce businesses have a relatively modest price that we can charge per sale. 20 to 50 bucks traditionally is the range. Okay, it might be more in your case, might be a bit less. The profitability per item is not that big compared to other business models like information marketing, right? Which is the business I'm engaged in right now, uh, where you can easily sell coaching for several hundred dollars for a package of coaching or even for an hour, depending on how well positioned you are or for a course or whatever. And uh, the overall profitability of the business is generally quite modest for e-commerce compared to other industries. You're looking about 10 to 20% EBITDA, so pre-tax profit range for an e-commerce business where with other business models like information marketing that I know best, um, 30, 40, even 50% is achievable. So why would we be in a low margin business uh, where we can only charge moderate costs to the consumers? Well, one reason is simple. It's that you can sell e-commerce businesses for a good multiple of profits. And right now is an incredible time for sales. We recently had the, the most recent sale that I've come across in my personal circle is one of the mastermind members who sold a business for seven figures, a healthy million plus pounds or certainly multiple, you know, well in north of a million dollars. Um, that did not have a huge uh, revenue it, and certainly not a huge profits either. So that is one of the upsides of the e-commerce business models that we're operating but it's challenging for cash flow. So if you're just running it for cash flow and you're not thinking about exit, I would say you're missing out big time. Therefore, you should educate yourself about, could I sell my business? If so, how do I go about it? And when it comes to how to go about it, obviously Klaus is one of the people out there who can help you with that. So hope that makes sense. A bit of a use case. Uh, I probably should have said this at the top of the show, but I think that's a reason why you should be looking into and educating yourself about how to sell your business in the first place. And if you're going to do it, avoid the classic mistakes. Thanks very much for listening. As ever, don't forget to share the love. So if you're enjoying this, uh, subscribe to the show on the podcast player of choice. You can follow us on Apple. I think they call it follow not um, subscribe now. You could give us a rating, one to five stars there. And you could also now give a rating on Spotify if that is where you listen to your podcasts, as many, many people do these days. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify. You call follow the show. Give it a rating as well. On Apple Podcasts, you can still also give a review, i.e. some written words. If you're willing to do that, that's incredibly helpful to me and be incredibly grateful. I'm not asking you for any other sort of payment um, for the podcast, but that would be my only request. Thank you so much for listening. Good, good luck, good hunting, and uh, I will speak to you in the next show soon. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. 
I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.